Today's guest has spent his entire adult life giving back to his community and helping his people. It hasn't been the most straightforward task due to historical and systemic reasons. Identifying what works and can make the biggest difference hasn't been easy, but he's finding a way through. Here's Laurie Bamblett. My name's Laurie Bamblett and I teach the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander History courses here at the ANU and I'm co-director of the Australian Centre for Indigenous History. You grew up in a place that you describe as paradise mm. and you still live there. You make the two-hour commute each week from that place. So what is home and what makes it a paradise? I was thinking about that this morning. It's just, I was thinking about this story where my brother-in-law, he wasn't my brother-in-law then, but when we were kids, uh, they used to get up to some crazy things and we used to play football in trees. Like we always say, we invented tree football. There were a row of trees on the mission with really wide branches. And we invented a game where you could play football. And we'd all get in the trees and we'd play football in them. And you'd have to jump from tree to tree to try and score. And he fell and broke his arm. Now, going to the hospital at those times wasn't a good thing. The hospital was segregated. It wasn't a good experience for our parents. And it was uh, in town. And people didn't have cars, so it was difficult to get there. You'd have to get somebody to take you and you know, they didn't really want to ring ambulances because that was a whole other issue. So he got into trouble and he's there with his broken arm and his mother's whacking him and hitting him, punching him and you know, and then he got in trouble off everybody else. So I thought, you know, how lucky were we that we, we kind of, we grew up in a place where people cared enough to kind of to treat us in that way, to try and teach us the right way. You know, the way that they did it, um, you know, some people might say, you didn't do it that way, but... You know, when you've got five or six boys in your house and they're you know, wild, you know, that's how she she had to do it. But we were cared for and we didn't get in trouble from one person. We got in trouble for several or eight people. So the whole community took it upon themselves to kind of raise you and to teach you what was right from wrong. Well, I don't know how many times as a kid I heard, you know, we don't do that. We're Adri don't do that. No, Bamblets don't do that. You know, everybody would always tell you and they'd stop you and teach you uh, based on biography, usually, you know, your grandfather wouldn't do that. You know, your grandparents wouldn't do that, and so you were constantly being talked to in that way, and you were taught what was right, what was wrong, what made a good Wiradjuri person, and so on. So, I think we were kind of we were blessed in that that people cared for us in that way. And I always tell the story when I'm teaching at dinner times as kids, we'd be called out to, and we'd be somewhere on the mission playing, and we'd come home, and we'd have to wash, and then we'd go around and we'd get the ingredients for dinner. You'd go to different houses and, and get different things and we'd be all talking to each other and say, well, you know, what are you looking for and such and such. And we'd go home with all of those ingredients. Uh, when we were growing up, we didn't have a fridge. We kept the things that needed to be refrigerated either in an esky or in the next door neighbour's fridge. And it was my job to kind of go over and get them. And every time i go there, she'd be sitting at her kitchen table and she'd stop me and she'd tell me a story about something. So, you know, I was really blessed that we grew up in that way, that, that collectivist approach to life. And... That's kind of the thing that I like about the place, is that the people really care in that way. And over the years, some people, outsiders, have, have uh, kind of mentioned that. One woman told a story about how she just mentioned in passing that she was looking for a particular piece of jewellery for her daughter and just forgot about it. And then a woman from the mission weeks later came up to her and gave her that piece of jewellery. She said, oh, I found this for you. And she said that she it really kind of uh, made her stop. It made her pause to think that somebody would care enough to do that and I when I heard the story I didn't think it was anything it just seemed normal to me that's what kind of what we do 
So over the years, I've started to think about you know, what is it that's different about us? And it really is that collectivist approach. It's those relationships to other people and to places and, and those things that create a certain type of community. And the place is just full of characters as well. I can just sit there all day and just watch them. Little things that I really enjoy, uh, like the way we speak English and uh, uh, things like plurals. One of my favourite is uh, instead of saying women, we say womanses mm -hmm. and those sorts of things. I, I, I really enjoy that. I really enjoy the kind of um, the expression uh, and the, the way we kind of construct sentences and trying to mix Wiradjuri with, with English. Yeah, so those types of things I really enjoy, the, the characters and the things that people get up to. We're always smiling, always happy, always laughing about something that somebody's done or yeah, some little thing. So to me, that's why it's a paradise. Mm -hmm. yeah, there are things that aren't so good, obviously, but all communities have that. Not all communities are defined by them in the way that we are. But for those of us that are inside the community, you know, we see a, a different world, one where everybody cares about you. Mm -hmm. And I tell my students all the time, can you imagine what it's like if you're a nine, ten-year-old child and you go into a room that's full of adults and every adult in that room stops and puts all their attention towards you. Can you imagine what that does to your self-esteem and to your confidence? And they tell you how good you are. Like Aboriginal people say deadly, it means good. And they tell you how deadly you are. Like if you did score a try at football on the weekend, oh, that was a deadly try, you know, the best one I've ever seen, or oh, gee, I like your shirt, that's deadly, little things, oh, I like your shoes, yeah, they're deadly. And they're constantly just building you up, telling you how good you are. And on top of that, as I said, you know, they're grabbing you all the time and they're telling you what it means to be a good Wiradjuri person, physically grabbing you. My parents would physically grab me and they'd say, you know, when people were um, talking bad about the mission, I would get 10 or 12 stories to counter that. So I was banking all of these positive stories and they'd physically grab me and they'd say, that's not who you are. And they'd say, this is who you are. And they'd point to photographs of grandparents and people like that. So yeah, that's why I describe it as paradise. It's a place that builds confidence mm. for me. So I don't think we've actually um, mentioned the name of the community. Yeah. So you've mentioned the word mission a couple of times oh, and yeah. you explained to me before that it wasn't actually a yeah. proper mission as such. Yes, our mission was a, a community or a place that was run by the church and Ramby has never been that, even though there were churches there and there was a push to Christianise our people. It was a, always a reserve, so it was just land set aside by the government for Aborigines to camp on. And it was meant to be um, policed by the local police, police officers uh, and they reported to the Aboriginal Protection and Welfare Board and they worked with them. And a, later on in 1924 it became a station where they appointed a manager and that's when it took on the form of a prison in a lot of ways and that people referred to as inmates and the, the managers had a, had a house at the front gate and people had to report to them and there were inspections of the houses and... and all those sorts of things where the, the protection board tried to really uh, enforce their control over people and, and kind of cut out that rebellion. And there were things like you know, before you leave, you had to tell the manager where you were going. Uh, you had to report when you came back. If you had friends, family that wanted to come and stay with you or even come and have a party, you had to get permission from the manager to have a party for your children, those sorts of things. Um, in other places, uh, you had to get permission to have a haircut so there were these, you know, real restrictions on what you could and couldn't do that the government tried to enforce, and that was a station. Arambi was initially a reserve, and it became a station. And the way it became a station was that the local council and the board thought that Arambi was too close to the town, so it's like three kilometres from town. 
they thought that was too close. And they tried to move further down the river to about 20 k's out of town. Yeah. There was even a proposal to transfer the mission to the PRW camp at the end of the war. Yeah. So they, yeah. But they, I think the reason they didn't do that was that it still wasn't far enough. Well, I know from their records they said it's still not far enough from town. I actually think that they, they looked at the size of the POW camp and how many people it could hold and imagine that many Aborigines living in the town. <laughs> I think that, that might have been one of the kind of deterrents for them as well. Yeah, but they had a site 20 k's down the river where they wanted people to move and the people of Rambi just refused. So they, uh, they called it a compromise, was to make the place a station and to have a manager there because everybody agreed something had to be done about the blacks. Yeah. But by the time you were growing up in Arambi in the 70s and 80s, a lot of those controls and restrictions fell away, didn't they? Yeah. So the managers left in 1965 and the act was changed and you know, the board was disbanded. Uh, this is just after the referendum. The Whitlam government came in and their policy, they call it uh, self-determination or self-management. It was actually self-management. So I grew up in that self-management era where we were controlling our own organisations and we were building organisations and, and um, yeah, so it was kind of more more control over things and that we had there at the time. And, yeah, so I grew up in that and I always say that it was a, an important part of my own development because when I walked out of my house, I saw people managing budgets. I saw people, you know, I sat and listened to those conversations of, of how they manage those different type of politics because they're no longer just against the other. They were now in control and they had to make decisions about the budgets and, and they had to make things work with what they had, yeah. So I grew up around that and you know, every night there were these big meetings in people's houses and you sit around and you, you get to listen to all that and watch what happens. And I was particularly interested in uh, the kind of the storytelling, the, the public communication, the private communications. I used to watch how people reacted to uh, discussions and debates and arguments and I was really interested in that side of it how they use their voice to influence other people. So I got to watch all that as I was growing up, yeah. Mm. So it was really influential in my life. So today you're a researcher and you're a teacher and for the last 10 years you've been running a reading program in your community that has greatly improved childhood literacy. Mm. But these roles that you've taken on weren't inspired by positive experiences that you had in school. Could you talk a bit about what it was like for you going through schooling? Um, in primary school, for the most part, it was fine. I mean, I tell the stories all the time that I had free, the free first days at school. And my father got a job in Sydney and he is fair skinned. So he went down, and he rented a house and we joined him later. And when the, the landlord, this is the 70s, and when the landlord saw my mother, he said, I don't want blacks in my house. And so he kicked us out. But in the meantime, school started, so my mother kind of dragged me to go to school. She was always worried about the welfare. The welfare coming, you know, the welfare will get you, the welfare will get you. And from the moment we walked in, the other parents and the teachers were kind of looking at her and whispering, and she noticed it, and I did as well. And we went into the classroom, and kindergarten classrooms have half a wall glass, and the parents were all standing outside the glass watching the kids for a while before they left. And my mum was there with them. And there were two teachers in the room and they were talking about her. Oh, what's, she, what's she doing here and why doesn't she just go? They knew she was my mother. It didn't bother them. And so all the parents left and my mother left with them and they were still talking about it. So I just got up and walked out. I left school. 
and she kind of she always tells a story about she was on her way home and she thought I better go back and check on this kid and sure enough she found me running around a tree laughing at the teacher who was trying to catch me and I was on my way home she doesn't know the the rest of the story I've never told her but you know we got kicked out and we moved to a little town where my called Harden where my grandfather was working and camped and I had to go to school there again and it was the same thing we walked in and they were whispering and we went into the room which was a demountable room and I can I can remember it is you know really vivid what happened and we're sitting in the room and the, the desks are organising a U-shape and I'm right at the end of the U and I can see out the door and I see my mother coming back in the classroom with my lunch and the teacher didn't want her in the room. It was really clear and she kind of had a hand on my mother's back and she's trying to usher her out the door. And I'm watching thinking my mother will get annoyed with me and tell her off because she doesn't kind of put up with that sort of thing. And there was a kid in the middle class and he said some really disgusting things about my mother and I told him to shut up. He said, is that black thing your mother and a few other things and I told him to shut up and when the teacher came back in she washed my mouth out with soap because I told him to shut up and I didn't know shut up was a swear word (laughs) I knew some swear words but I didn't know that that was one of them and yeah even today and when my wife was teaching kindergarten whenever I went to walk past the kindergarten classrooms where they have those little sinks and I can taste the soap in my mouth so those kinds of experiences were really um uh, kind of important for me and yeah we came home we ended up coming home to Arambi when the fruit picking season ended and I, I ended up going to school there but there were a lot of Aboriginal kids there so it was much more useful yeah it was much different in the way that people looked at us in those other places there weren't any Aboriginal people around and so it was kind of something that stuck out and but it was really uh, kind of formative to me when I got in trouble because you know the kid that said that about my mother I um he probably didn't know that Aboriginal kids learned to box very young so I kind of taught him that in the playground. And when I was sitting there in trouble, and I was six years old, and I remember thinking, why didn't they ask me why I did it? Nobody ever asked me why I did it. Nobody ever asked me why I told him to shut up. Nobody ever asked me why I bruised him, <laughs> why I did that. They just kind of expected that that's how we are. So, yeah, from that point on, I really um, I had a kind of a chip on my shoulder about school to begin with because I grew up with the stories of how they treated my mother. You know, they had the Aboriginal curriculum in the schools when my mother went. The the welfare board decided that they shouldn't have an equal curriculum with other students. So they had an Aboriginal curriculum, a separate one, which was teaching them how to be basically be slaves, to be domestic workers. So that's what they did. They cleaned, they learned very basic, uh, the alphabet and and English and a very basic history of Australia. Um, And then they cleaned. When I became a researcher and went back and read through the manager's day books, because the manager was a teacher, they didn't have a qualified teacher. And every day, they're talking about cleaning the bookshelves, cleaning this, and got the students, got the teachers, to, uh, students to do this, taught them sewing, they taught them cleaning, apparently um, cooking. The boys and girls both taught gardening. And one of the things that stuck out in my mind was every day, dusted the bookshelves. And I knew that they didn't have books in the school. So they were dusting these empty bookshelves every day. And they didn't get a, a qualified teacher until 1952. That was the year they closed the school. So he was only there for a short time and um, my mother was one of that group and they always talk about that was the first time they ever had books at a school. They got a teacher to come in and he used to ride his bike out to the mission from the town and he was the first one that ever introduced them to books. I grew up with those stories. And um, my mother said to me one day, she was in her 60s and she went back and completed her schooling because she left. When they integrated the school in town, they sat them at the back of the room, they checked them for head lice, 
and for cleanliness, and they sat them at the back of the room, and the teachers refused to teach them once they integrated the schools in 1953. So they just left. And when she was in the 60s and she finished work, my mum went back to school uh, through TAFE, and she said to me one day, she came home, she said, you know what, I've, um, I found this most marvellous book today. I said, oh, yeah, what was it? And she said, they called it a dictionary. I said, well, I kind of looked at her, and I said, what? Well, what do you mean? She said, yeah, yeah, white people have this book, they call it a dictionary. She said, and it has all their words in it. And so she got herself a dictionary. And she would sit there and she would read through that and the Aborigines uh, Land Rights Act from 1983. She could quote passages from that. And she'd sit there and study in it all day with her dictionary. And one day she called me and she said, can you buy me a new dictionary? And I said, oh, yeah, why? She said, because this one, I wore it out. And when I got it and actually looked at it, and I keep it and I, I use it sometimes in my teaching, it's a worn-out dictionary because when she reads, she uses a hand. Mm. And so there's no print. It's all been worn out. So kind of this idea that, you know, Aborigines don't value education, I always counter with that story and say we do value education, we don't value schools, and they're not the same thing. And we have education in our own communities, and that's what my parents valued. And so... Once my mother realised at a very young age that I didn't like school, she encouraged me not to go to school. And I think it's one of the blessings of my life because every morning she'd say, I want you to go out and talk to so-and-so. They know about this part of our history and I would go and learn from them and then they would send me on to the next person. They'd say, go and ask uncle over there about this now. And so that was how I spent a lot of my days. I did go to school in primary school, but once I got to high school, probably about year eight, I kind of realised that after roll call I could leave and nobody missed me. And I started to just circle through the school and, and go home or go to the river. Or, and eventually I started to go to work with my father, who didn't value school either, and he was quite happy for me to go and work with him. And, um, yeah, I learned a lot from the old men that he used to work with as well. So I kind of learned our history in cherry orchards and, and in, you know, in paddocks and, and orchards and, and going around the mission. And even today I teach Aboriginal history. I don't read Aboriginal history books. I don't need to. And I talked about Peter Reed doing his PhD at Arambia. I learned about the stolen generation long before they came up with that term. I learned all, all those stories about it. And it wasn't just, you know, this is what happened on the mission. They understood the legislation. They could quote you parts of the legislation. They understood you know, all those official documents. They could teach you using those things. And sometimes they would pull them out and show you. So, yeah, I had a pretty good education in, in that way about you know, Aboriginal history in general, but or Adri history in particular. So, yeah, I think it was really one of the blessings of my life that I got to learn it in that way, yeah. Mm. So a bit of a different education, but it's working. Mm. <laughs> you mentioned that you worked with your father. Mm. Um, you also did continue to go to high school, but um, you found that rather than your academic excellence, the teachers there uh, valued your contributions to sport instead. Yeah, not all of them. Mm -hmm. You know, there were a few really good teachers that really cared about our learning, but I always think that they're, you kind of the bad outweighs the good in your memory in a lot of ways. Like, I remember a lot of the, there were racist teachers there. They just were, they were racist. And you remember them first, and then you've got to kind of, it takes a little bit more effort to remember the good ones and, and their kindness and their interest in your learning, but they were there. It's just, you know, as I said, you know, kind of, one outweigh the other. Um, and we understood that. We understood that at school. They won us here at, 
when on sports days. They love having us around on sports days. And it was the same for my parents and that generation. When they integrated the schools in town, they told me the only day we felt welcome in the school was on sports day. They really liked having us there then. And that still happens. There's still this idea that Aboriginal kids um, are good at and are interested in sports, so you should only focus on that. And, you know, that's despite decades now of people trying to, to change that, but it's still the perception that people have. I mean, I ask my students now uh, what they know about Aborigines, and two things are clear. Two things come through consistently. Probably almost 90% of students write two things, good at sport or athletic and disadvantaged. When I ask them, you know, what image comes to mind, those are the two things that come through consistently. Good at sport and disadvantaged, and the good at sport part of the story reinforces the idea of disadvantage. So they say we're good at good at sport because we're trying to escape our communities. So it kind of fits that narrative, fits in well there. But yeah, we, we understood, we knew. As long as we're here for sport, then everything will be fine. They'll be happy with us. And, and so we played on that. We would leave the school and we'd make sure we were there on sports days. And uh, when I got to year 10, the head of my year, who was one of the ones that was really interested in us, he came to me with the football coach. And I noticed straight away, this is unusual. Why is it the football coach and, and him? The football coach was a teacher as well, but no particular interest in us other than football. And he said, you haven't been at school enough days to get your year 10 certificate. I kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, yeah, right, huh? <laughs> Didn't matter to me at all. And he said, well, if you promise that you'll start coming to school and that you'll enrol for year 11, then we'll make sure that you get your 10 certificate. And I said, again, okay. Not thinking much of it, but thinking about it later on, they wanted me to come back to play football. Yeah, well, the football coach did. Um, so, yeah, I agreed to it. I didn't do it. I didn't go to school anymore. I didn't change anything. I did enrol in year 11. I think I went for two days. So I'm a dropout from technically year 11, I guess, but practically probably year 9 or 10 was when I really dropped out of school. And I'd just go to work with my father or hang around the mission. So, yeah, they were kind of our experience. of it. it seemed like that was acceptable to people. Years later, me and my wife started a school that the kids called Laurie School, and there were about 14 kids that either left in year five, six, or they'd enrolled in year seven. Maybe they'd gone to year seven, but by year nine, none of them were attending school at all. So Laurie School... What was it that made you want to become a teacher? Oh, well, when I left school and I was working, I was an apprentice carpenter at the time, and I used to volunteer in the after-school program. My sister ran it, and I would do vacation care, and I was coaching a lot of the, the sports teams on the mission and that sort of thing. So they got me to go and volunteer and work at that, and we'd have teachers come up each afternoon for a homework centre. And... It was just the way that they treated the kids, the way that they spoke to them. They didn't seem to me that they liked them very much. They were always kind of telling them to shut up and be quiet. And they'd just been at school all day being told to do that. And there were a couple of things that happened that kind of stick in my memory. Is that I used to sit with the kids and they'd lean on me and cuddle me while I drew for them or I helped them with their homework or you know, I'd tell them stories and that sort of thing. And uh, one of the teachers said to my sister who ran the center, should he, they be doing it? Should he be doing that? And the kids cuddle him like that. And I used to joke with them. I'd say, do your homework or I'll rip your leg off and kick you up the bum with it or silly things like that, you know. 
and they'd crack up laughing and the teachers didn't like that. That was to them was disruption. And so there was always that sort of tension between me and them. I'd tell them to mind their own business. I'd say to them, do your homework and we'll go out and we'll play roundies or something like that. And the teachers didn't like any of that sort of thing. So there was always that kind of a clash. And then one day a young teacher had come along just finishing up her studies and uh, she stood up in front of there were 75 odd kids that came every day and about half a dozen parents and she said, I'm so thankful that you allowed me to come and work with your community. I've always wanted to work with people with learning disabilities. And I kind of looked at my sister and my sister mouthed the words to me, don't you dare, because <laughs> I was about to say something. And so I bit my tongue because she's older than me and time tells me what to do. And so I didn't say anything. And I, I kind of focused straight in on the senior teachers. None of them corrected her. Instead, they pointed out a boy and said, okay, you can work with him today. Now, can you imagine what that would be like for him? But yeah. it didn't occur to them. Mm. It didn't occur to them at all. It seemed like so normal. And I was sitting there thinking, hang on a minute. You're teachers. You, you should know better than that. And you've been here. Some of them have been working with us for 10 or so years. They should know us better than that. Uh, so the young woman went and worked with the boy and, an hour later, she came back and she said, I'm giving up teaching. I don't want to teach anymore. And and still nobody said, well, well, maybe that's our fault. They said to me, can you go and talk to him? I was the one that kind of enforced things all the time. And I said, yeah, okay. And I went and talked to him. I said, good on you. It's exactly what I would have done. You did the right thing. And then, But they left there that day thinking that, uh, that it was us that was the problem, not what they'd said. So they saw that as him not understanding, not valuing education as being a kind of a muck-up. But who wouldn't react that way? If, you, know, you talk about learning disabilities and you point him out in front of everybody. He doesn't have learning disabilities. He was really clever. They just didn't get the time to find that. So I thought to myself, well, I can do this better. And that's when I gave up the carpentry apprenticeship and I went to university. Yeah, I just thought I could do it better. So you went from being a high school dropout to doing an alternative pathways to uni course to then going to university as a mature age student. So what was your experience this second time around with formal education like? The program I did was called the Courier Admissions Program and it was a week on campus at Charles Sturt University at Albury where we did basically a semester's work in a week. And so we had to do a maths and an English exam and we had to write an essay and we had to keep a, a research diary and I think we had to do another essay and there was an interview with um, some professors and, and some of the Indigenous staff. And if we passed all those things and we had a, a guaranteed place at uni. So, yeah, I went down and even I was kind of um and ahhing about it because university to me was, I, I knew what it was, kind of understood it, but it was a different world, even though one of my aunts had I had graduated from Harvard, but that was just this place she went to overseas, this famous school. Other than that, I didn't really think of it, didn't really understand it, I guess, at the time what it was. So I went down to Albury to the program and on the, I had to leave on the Sunday and it was the day of the Rugby League Grand Final. And I say all the time that it was um, the Bulldogs versus Brisbane and my brother is a Brisbane supporter and an obnoxious one and they were winning. So I just got sick of him because I was kind of leaning towards not going. But at halftime, I got up and left and drove to Albury because I was sick of him. So I always you know, say that, you know, if it wasn't for him being an obnoxious supporter, I probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have done it. It would have kind of changed my life. 
So we get there and on the first day, I think might have been the first day, we were all sat in this big lecture theatre. And this man comes in and he has on no shoes. He looks like he's been styled by Papa Smurf. He's got grey hair and a grey beard and kind of unkept and a little bit raggedy looking T-shirt and a pair of trousers. And here he tells this story about a pig that thinks it's a dog. He was a maths lecturer, but he was a brilliant storyteller. And it had a point. I can't remember any of the details of the story, but I, I say all the time, I remember how it made me feel. It made me feel like, ah, this is a place I need to be. So I decided right then, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And, yeah, I did it. I enrolled. And on my first day at university, I still didn't understand. I turned up there on the day that they said I had to be there. And I expected bells to ring to mark the end of classes and the beginning of lunch and little lunch and all that sort of thing. That was my concept of university. And I was going to move to Bathurst, which is the campus that I would have been studying on. And when I realised that it was only four courses, eight classes a week, then I realised, hang on, I can stay at home. So I stayed at home and, and commuted and kept working in the community. So yeah, it suited me really well. And just being on campus in the libraries, and it reminded me a lot of the mission. It really did. It was a really positive place where people that care about you and experts in certain knowledge, and, and the mission's like that. You have people that are experts in certain things. Like I grew up around people who, if you wanted to learn the guitar, they could listen to a song on the radio once and they could teach you to play it on guitar. So they were kind of musical geniuses in a way in, in the community, or you know, at least very talented. So I grew up around that kind of specialised, really... It's kind of a knowledge that was similar to... Aboriginal knowledge or Wiradjuri knowledge in that people kind of tended to own it and they shared it with you once you've earned that right. So, yeah, it reminded me a lot of, of the mission, especially the the um, kind of the tone, the feel. Usually positive people, happy, smiling people. So, yeah, I felt at home there. Whereas a school, I didn't feel at home there. I never felt at home there. It seemed like, to me, it was a cold place. And whip, yeah. Apart from you know, just a few people, there wasn't that same care. And people didn't seem to be enjoying it as much as they did at university. So yeah, once I kind of noticed that, I really thrived in that. I was really happy to be there and I've never left really. You've touched upon storytelling a few times now and storytelling is very important to you and to your culture and it generally involves the transmission of history and of ideas but also you have talked about in your 2015 National Reconciliation Week lecture about the story that the rest of society tells about Indigenous Australians and also the story that some Indigenous Australians tell to themselves about themselves and how deeply damaging that story can be. Mm. Would you be able to talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, that's that meta-narrative, that grand narrative of, of uh, Aboriginal deficit, you know, just how pervasive it is. It's, it's really, it's an Australian story. It's a national story that people tell. And um, it, it is really effective. I always say for somebody like me that was blessed, that had somebody that physically grabbed me and tell me who I really am, it doesn't matter. I grit my teeth and walk through that. The ones that it really affects are the people that are vulnerable 
And every culture, every society has people within that are vulnerable. And yet they're the ones that really get affected by that, I think. And they kind of take on and believe that. My parents wouldn't, they were aware of it. So that's another kind of blessing that I had. They understood exactly what was going on. They really were quite keyed into that narrative, that narrative of Aboriginal deficit and how important it was to, to uh, counter that. So they did. They banked, constantly banked positive stories to counter the negative. And I've really thrived from that in my life. But yeah, not everybody has that. And not everybody has that at all times. And so people can take on that, can become their self-image. And that's where it kind of really is uh, a problem. I would say that I spent um, quite a bit of my career in the academic world looking outward. And that was a mistake for me because I was trying to convince people that what you see is not who we really are. And I kind of had... Um, you know, something happened in the community where with a young fellow who um, I tried to look out for when he was when he was young, it made me realise that I needed to look inward more, and I needed to really focus on that self-image and that self-perception, and instead of telling outside of those stories, tell the people inside the community because that's what I had, and I sort of realised that I wasn't doing what those old people had wanted me to do. They didn't want me to tell outsiders a story so much or focus you know, just on them. They wanted me to change the inside to make sure that the young people could kind of stand up to that. So I kind of had to change my approach a little bit, and that's why I started doing things like our own schools, and that's where the reading program and those sorts of things come into is changing my um, view more to look more inward at my own community and to kind of think about my audience, my primary audience as being those young people. So, yeah, my kind of approach was to say to people, you're wrong, that's not who we really are, or at least say to them, hang on a minute, can we rethink this? Yeah, and to try and kind of counter it. And then uh, kind of one of the realisations that I've had, well, what does that really do? Because that story is kind of, it's at a point now where, you know, there's this thing in um, discourse analysis where you talk about co-locations, where... You put two words together, they start to become kind of synonymous with things. So Aboriginal and disadvantage and deficit have been put together so much over so many years that now Aborigine comes to mean deficit to a lot of people, including in some cases our own people. You know, they kind of internalise that. Or they believe the idea that we're good at sport. And I know they believe that because when I was growing up, we used to say that. And I've heard young people say that. I've heard people say they've got all this and that, and they go to school, they've got all the jobs, but we play football. Yeah, before games, you know, in that preparation, I've actually heard people say those exact words. And I kind of always think, well, hang on a minute. That's not what I grew up with. Yeah, we're good at football. We're good at all sports, but we're good at everything. <laughs> we've been around so long, we've learned how to do everything. So, yeah, you know, school is our thing as well. It's not just sport. Uh, we've developed a pretty good way of looking at the world. So kind of, I've kind of shifted in a way my, the way that I look at things and, and my view to be less outward and trying to convince other people of that, more to focusing on, on the young people. So, yeah, I think that's one of the things I kind of learned from that reconciliation lecture in that I told this story and I knew that people there had this image of us in their mind. And I put up photographs and I told all these stories of that's not who we are. That was like my mantra. That's not who we are. This is who we are. 
And the, the talk was attended, um, it was meant to be for senators and their staff, there were people from the parliamentary library and a lot of people worked in Parliament House and a lot of people came up to me afterwards and were smiling and, and, and thanked me for the talk and said, you know, what you're saying is common sense, but I'd never thought of it before. And that, and a few people said that and that kind of stayed with me. It struck me. It was, oh, okay then. If it's common sense, why did I need to tell you? It's kind of not. And it made me really think about, well, uh, is this the best kind of use of my time? Should I be telling them that story or should I kind of, you know, think about a different audience? So it kind of made me change my approach, that, that experience of that, that lecture. And in a way, it, was, it didn't really matter what outsiders said about us in my growing up. What mattered was what insiders, people in the community were saying about us. That's what mattered to me. So that's kind of the thing that I took from that that experience was, and it really changed the approach that I had. And so I started to publish a lot more in local newspapers and you know, just to think about a different audience in that way. So I think I probably got more out of that talk than the people that they did. I'm sure they forgot it not long afterwards, but it, yeah, it, the response really did stay with me, that they would say it's common sense, but I hadn't thought about it before. And um, not long after that, I gave a Manning Clark lecture at Manning Clark House. And it was the same thing. I talked for 40 minutes about, you know, that's not who we are. This is who we are. And there was someone in the audience and, who said, oh, that's fine for you and your community, but I think your community is probably the exception. I come from um, a community, and she mentioned uh, Griffith and the freeways community. And she said, but the people there are different. You know, there were some people kind of shaking their heads. And I said, well, that's a really good example. But do you know that, uh, to her, do you know that the Griffith community is made up of people from Arambi? Arambi people were the ones that first stayed there in camp because once the manager came to Arambi and they had all these restrictions on their lives, people left. They went to Redfern and they went to Griffith because it was an unmanaged reserve. They didn't want that intrusion, the government trying to tell them how to live their lives. So those people that she were talking about were our elders who packed up and moved to get away from the board. So I said, well, you're actually talking about the people that I'm talking about. You're just not listening. So, yeah, those experiences really made me think, well, who should my audience be? And it made me focus more back on um, education and not just schools, but more as young people. So, yeah, that was, to me, those experiences were probably more important for what I do than the people that were there. So the history of Arambi, cultural continuity, health and well-being, those are all ideas and themes that you've been focused on your whole life essentially and they were the subject of your PhD. And after your PhD, you ended up at ANU by way of a research fellowship with IATSIS and In talking about this, you mentioned to me before that you thoroughly enjoy your work, but you also feel like you're torn between two worlds. Can you talk a bit about what these two worlds are and and what this conflict is that you feel? Yeah. The term that has been applied to what I've been thinking about my whole life, like when I, I was doing my PhD, I was teaching at Charles Sturt University and the opportunity came up for a one year visiting fellowship at IATSIS. And I had a project, a specific project in mind. I wanted to tell the story of the integration of schools in Cowra. And I did that. And there were seven people, including my mother, who were still alive. And so I interviewed them and 
I wrote about it and I got a conference presentation, which is what I had to do, but I ended up staying at IAS. I was meant to be there for 12 months. I stayed there for six years before I came here. And um, when I was there, the director of research there said to me, you know, you talk a lot about something that a, a Mohawk scholar and a friend of mine talks about. And his name was Ty Alfred, Ty Arke Alfred. So she loaned me his book, uh, Wasiche, and I had that book for quite a while, a few months, never got past the dedication. He was a native person writing and thinking in native language. So I just kept reading this dedication. I was reading it every day, never got to the other chapters. Eventually I gave the book back and bought my own copy. And yeah, it just clicked. It seemed like he was a native person who was, was a little bit further along the journey of working out what we need to do than me. And he's kind of on, on a path that he calls, or that some people call, Indigenous resurgence, which is about reconnecting with our own identity as a way going forward. And that's what you know, people in our cult, in our community have been talking about all the time. We have to be strong in our culture. Well, things like schools were created, or Aboriginal education was invented to assimilate us, and it hasn't changed. It's still about assimilating us into the mainstream society. So my kind of thinking and my work over the years has been about kind of making sense of all these, you know, from when I was a six-year-old, understanding why nobody asked me why I hit that kid, why I told him to shut up, bringing all these things together and understanding, kind of figuring out for myself, well, what does all that mean? And it really is about these kind of two different stories. There's one where there's a demand for us to assimilate, and then there's us saying, well, actually, no, we don't want to be like you. We want to be like our old people. And that's the right way forward. Eventually, I've been wandering around and eventually got to this on this same track as Ty and, and a lot of other people, in, especially in North America and, and more and more here in Australia, around yeah, Indigenous resurgence. And so you see things in young people like my second eldest son, he's being initiated. So he has the incision marks all on his chest. And, and that's important to him. Culture is important to him a lot more than school. And I used to do things like I'd take him, he'd come and do my research with me instead of going to school. Because he was the one that was kind of always on my shoulder, leaning on me, cuddling me when I was doing the work. And so I recognised it in him that that was what he was interested in. So all these things come together under this kind of banner of Indigenous resurgence. And really it's, it's how do we deal with colonisation? Because colonisation and colonialism, they're the problem, not us. So yeah, there's this shifting how other people see us. That's kind of one part of it. But there's this more important thing that we're doing uh, internally, and it's about taking back in day-to-day -day activities the things that were taken away from us, little things like language. And I talk about how I became disconnected from my community when I started teaching, because I studied history in a kind of a different way as well. I'm always doing things in different ways. And I went to university with an interest in the connection between history and well-being, health and well-being, because... I'd noticed that you know, old people, when they told their stories, they always seemed content, happy. They never seemed happier or healthier than when they were doing it. So I had that in my mind. So I was interested in the physical impact of history. So I studied those things. I studied physiology and anatomy. And my first teaching was in, uh, I taught a course, Advanced Physiology, it was called. And they're two-hour, very intense, uh, rote learning. You know, you've got to memorize things and 
the way that I spoke when I went to university wasn't really conducive to that because it was confusing students. So I use a mixture of Wiradjuri and, and English and uh, what they call Aboriginal English and in the way that looks. So I learned not to do that. And I would, in my notes, I would put little reminders for myself, you know, not to use Wiradjuri words when I knew something was come up in the lecture. And eventually got out of that and I changed the way that I speak. And so I've noticed that my children now don't have a very big Wiradjuri vocabulary, not as big as mine, but their English vocabulary is way better than mine. <laughs> so, you know, thinking about little things like that. Look, I said to my kids the other day, where's Mirigan? And they said, what's that? Oh, oh my gee, yeah. Mirigan is our word for dog. We kind of, it's just a secondhand sort of thing. And, um, and you know, there are other words that I'll use and they'll look at me like, what are you talking about? So, it's just those little day-to-day -day things for a minority group trying to push back against assimilation. Those little day-to-day -day things become big things. So I feel like I'm, I've kind of been disconnected from my community in those ways. I was so busy going out, giving lectures and talking and teaching outside the community that I'm not passing it on inside the community in the way that I was meant to be, which is the way that I was taught, you know, just sitting around, taking the time, sit there with them for days and, you know, cuddling them while they tell me those stories. I wasn't doing that. So, yeah, that was kind of one of those things where I had to kind of rethink what am, what is it that I'm doing. And, and reading Ty Alfred's work really was um, kind of a catalyst for that. Because I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I'd go to a place like ANU and teach those young people. They go out there in important positions. Some of them will become teachers uh, because they're part of a, um, the majority in a democracy. What they know about us matters. I, I knew what I was doing and why. But, yeah, that kind of made me rethink it. Well, okay then, so what? How does it help in the community? And I was kind of neglecting that kind of cultural responsibility. I wasn't passing on the, the oral history that had given me so much in my own life. So that led me to Indigenous Resurgence, which is still my way of trying to find a balance between the academic world and the Wiradjuri world. And I'm still working out how to do that, but, yeah, hopefully we'll get there. Or maybe you know, it, we never will. I mean, there was an activist from the, the tent embassy, Isabel Coe, who comes from Arambi that I'm related to. And when we were young, she, uh, Isabel actually gave me my first job. Uh, it was in a cultural resource centre and we had a library. That's where I read my first books. Didn't read any books at school. But they, they um, filled the library with all these books about Aborigines. And um, there were books by Fannin and uh, the, the Black Panthers. And that's when I picked them up and said, oh, this is us. This, you know, I'm interested in this. I'll read this. And, and so she encouraged us to join the system, and all those activists did. They wanted to create a space where young people could go in and change the system. So they encouraged us to join you know, the police force, to join the education system, to join the health system. And then I remember her saying one day that what they realised was that we're actually not changing the system. The system is changing us. So they thought that was a mistake. And when I heard her say that, I, th I kind of realised that that's what I thought as well. The system is changing us. We're not changing it. So maybe I just need to accept that the system, we can't change the system, that it really does change us. But I'm not there yet. I'm not willing to kind of concede that yet. I'm still trying to find a place where we can you know, have one foot in each world. So in terms of these two things, assimilation and learning, practising, continuing your culture, and trying to negotiate between these two, that 
underlies your ANU Grand Challenges project. Could you describe what that project is about and and how you're trying to find a paradigm of reconciliation, something that goes beyond what we currently understand about reconciliation? Yeah, so our Grand Challenges project, is, there are two things happening there. There's my Indigenous resurgence in kind of the education field, and there's this sort of broader project which is around um, rethinking reconciliation. Because at the moment, I think reconciliation is either it's too close to or it's kind of an, an agent of assimilation. Because the answer still is we reconcile by Aborigines becoming more like Europeans. Well, Aboriginal people are never really going to accept that. And I hope we never do. Because if we do, what happens? We become European. So I hope that people never do accept it. And uh, I don't think that we will. So reconciliation has been the paradigm that people have used to think about Aborigines for a long time now. So we're thinking about, well, what what comes after that? What is next? Uh, you know, Aboriginal disadvantage was, that slogan was used as a, a, a paradigm for thinking about us. And it's kind of been pushed over a little bit by the idea of reconciliation, but not too far. It's still heading in the same direction. The next thing seems to be a strengths-based approach. So we, we're ditching that language of deficit, and we're starting to talk now about uh, a strength-based approach. But still the direction is the same. It's just we're taking a strength-based approach to assimilation. So what we want to do is to think about if we can push it that and we can rethink and get people to stop and think about what reconciliation actually is uh, and all these kind of associated uh, slogans and, and terms, we may find the next idea. And it looks like Indigenous resurgence may be that next idea. But then again, Indigenous resurgence has the, the potential to still be headed in the same direction. Is that what people want? Is that you know, what we're going to do? Or is it just a stepping stone to another completely different idea? So our project is about that. It's about saying, well, this is what reconciliation is now. This is what it may be. And that's about going into Aboriginal communities and asking people, you know, what do you think about it? One of my the questions I like to ask people is, what does close the gap look like? People talk about it all the time, but I say to people, well, what does that actually look like? Describe it to me. And if they're describing something where we live like Europeans, I say, well, what happens if we don't accept that? There's a lot of taken-for-granted um, understandings and assumptions in, in these ideas, in these frameworks of reconciliation. So, you know, Ty Alfred and the, the people, this Indigenous resurgence movement, it's about reconciliation as well. But it's not about reconciling between Aboriginal and, and, or Native and non-Native. It's about reconciliation across generations of Native people. So what they say is that, yeah, we want to reconcile, but first we have to reconcile with our ancestors. We want to be like them. We want to stand on the same size cultural rock that they did or as close to it as we can. Then we can talk about the relationship between the groups. So, yeah, it's kind of around, that's what our project is about. It's really about stopping and, and just sort of thinking for a moment. You know, we're so rushed towards reconciliation and about you know, the key performance indicators and, and that ticker box approach. We're doing this, we're doing this, and this. Well, hang on a minute. Where are we heading? What is the direction? What does it look like when we get there? Because if it looks like assimilation, then we need to stop and talk about that. Yeah. So we're kind of testing people's assumptions. Yeah. Because sometimes those slogans become just... Um, people just use them without really thinking through what they mean. And so our project is about that. And it's about taking those yeah uh, because in aboriginal communities we do think about those things so it's about taking those stories and those voices 
and then kind of matching them up with people that we can uh, share them with. Yeah, so it's really about uh, understanding what uh, what truth and reconciliation really mean, rather than just having them as as throwaway lines. And you know, my part of that is uh, what does schooling look like for? In my case, it would be a Wiradjuri community. Um, yeah, should culture be something that's kind of like religious education, or something that's done once a week, maybe within school, or should it be separate from schools? How do we do it and how do we make a space? How do we create a place where um, schooling will be will be valued? Because at the moment, it's not school's not about teaching our values and the things that we want. It's about teaching the values and the things that colonisers want. So it's kind of putting a pause on things and making people think about those terms that kind of get used in a throwaway fashion at the moment. Yeah. But they're really important. <laughs> Reconciliation rules everything that we do including here at the university. yeah. So we want people just to stop and say, well, hang on a minute, what does that actually mean? Yeah, where are we heading? Well, Laurie Bamblett, I wish you all the best in that mission and thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. This Academics Life is written and produced by me, Ivana Ho, for the College of Arts and Social Sciences at the Australian National University. The production assistant for this episode was Brandon Tan. The theme music is Snowblower by Flower Crown. If you enjoyed hearing Laurie's story and want to help spread his ideas, please share this episode in every way you can think of. This was the last episode of This Academic's Life for 2019. We have seven others that you can revisit or appreciate afresh. And if there's someone in your life who you're not sure if you can trust, have a listen to episode 7 of our sister podcast, Better Things. Philosopher Associate Professor Colin Klein offers some help with that quandary. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next year.